This week's John Tapp Racing Podcast is brought to you by Inglis, number one in its field. One of Victoria's best respected trainers is Mornington-based Pat Carey, a multiple Group 1 winning trainer who started his career at the now-defunct Mentone and Epsom training centres. Both famous tracks have long gone, and the land on which they stood has been swallowed up by housing. Many of Melbourne's most famous trainers were based at Epsom or Mentone, and Pat Carey says you only had to look and listen if you wanted to learn. Nowadays, Pat is operating from a small property at Mornington, which gives him easy access to the beach. The last time I spoke to Pat Carey, he'd just won the Australian Derby with Ethiopia. So this chat is long overdue. Pat Carey, lovely to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks very much, John. Uh, It's a pleasure to be on your show. Mate, I just happened to catch a long-distance race at Echuca on Saturday. I fluked it, really. I happened to hear your name mentioned on Sky Racing, and uh, you had just won with a plodding, one-paced horse who could have gone around again. What was his name? His name's Ivana Haymaker. Yeah. And uh, he's owned by uh, Shelley Hancock's and uh, Syndicate, which is uh, great to get the support off Shelley. She's a wonderful, wonderful woman and been one of the, the stalwarts of the syndication and racing in Victoria. And, uh, you know, to win a race with Havana Haymake of her, I've, I haven't had many horses for Shelley. I think I might have only had one or two yeah. over the journey. But um, it's great. It's a, it's, a, it's a privilege to win a race for her. And... Uh, the horse himself, well, you know, a 2,800-metre benchmark 58 at a Chica on a Saturday is for a very special type of horse, John. <laughs> My word, and there's a long race coming up in Victoria early next year that might suit him. Well, yeah, there's, uh, you know, he's he's a horse that we've uh, earmarked for the Jericho Cup if he's uh, capable of getting a run now. Mm. To give you an idea of what the Jericho Cup is, it's a uh, it's uh, an initiative of uh, an entrepreneur called Bill Gibbons, who's um, who's working off a book that he read called Bill the Bastard, and he was so inspired by this <laughs> book called yeah. Bill the Bastard, which is the story of a, uh, a an Australian light cavalry horse that went to uh, Gallipoli in World War One. Mm. And he was a massive horse. He was a waller, but he was a massive big horse. And uh, his story is, I've read the book, and it's a very, very interesting story. And uh, this horse was a heroic horse who uh, went through Palestine, Gallipoli, and uh, Bill was so inspired, he decided to um, name a race after him called the Jericho Cup. And it's a 4,000-litre race for only Australian and New Zealand bred horses, so mm. it's out of the norm. Yeah. And uh, he's contributing a very sizable purse for the race. So it'll be on the radar for a lot of trainers down here in uh, Victoria. There's a lot of trainers down here who'd love that challenge of training stayers, given that a lot of these guys down here have got, you know, jumping backgrounds and, um, you know, staying bred horses. So. You know, I'm sure that uh, it'll 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 uh, resonate well with a lot of them. Pat, you were one of nine kids. Your younger brother Bernard appears to be the only sibling who had any interest in racing apart from you. Well, it's 
it, in an interesting family, um, my father, my late father, Bill, um, had a very small, um, what we would, what we what we used to know as an SP bookmaker. I think they're nearly extinct now, the SPs. So, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there was always racing in the house, but, um, we were the young, we were the, you know, the youngest and the third youngest in the family. And, uh, whilst there was always racing in the house, it, uh, we were the only ones that actually got actively involved, uh, in the business. And, um, Primarily through my uh, introduction, I introduced myself to John Maher as a young guy and uh, asked him if I could help uh, help him out on the after school and weekends. And mm. you know, John thought this would be a a good lurk getting a kid to rake the yards, and, <laughs> and he thought <laughs> I'd last about a week or two. But it, it, it worked out a bit longer than that, the deal for John. But um, mm. and Bernard followed me into those steps as well. So yeah, uh, that was. Um, that was uh, whilst we were still at school. You grew up in the Mentone Cheltenham area and that old Mentone track was actually still in use when you were growing up. Bit of history there. Yeah, look, um, I went to St Bede's at Mentone, which was a De La Salle Brothers school and, uh, you know, there was a, in a lot of Irish Catholics in the area and, and they were all fundamentally interested in racing because um that was the that was the nature and you know you get uh, you get all, you get a lot of those um between mentone and mordialic where you had epsom and the mentone training center there was just so many people involved you know uh, in racing it was it was it was on every street and on every corner there was someone at a stable so mm-hmm. there was a lot of horses in the area and We'd ride to school in the morning and I'd go down past Bobby Hoisted's stable and I got to know Bobby really well. And uh, what an amazing trainer Bobby turned out to be. He was um, going through a transition at the time. He got rid of probably most of his horses, which would have been, you know, this is the early 70s, Mm. got rid of most of his horses and cut it back to a team of two, including... Mm. He kept Old Scamander, who was a great horse, won a Blue Diamond and three Lynn Lithgows, mm. and re-established and rebuilt himself off off that base. And uh, I reckon I've only ever seen one other person do that, and that'd be John Size, who uh, was mm. training in Queensland early in his career and gave it away and came back a better trainer, you know. But Bobby was an amazing trainer and an amazing horseman, and I got to know Bob well and used to carry his saddles in from the float every morning, and, uh, mm. you know, it was just a pretty special special uh, position to be in to have a legend of Australian racing and have get to know him on a first-name basis. Bill Murrell was school. there, Pat, and uh, Jim Maloney was there. Uh, yeah, Bill Murrell was a great horseman, and uh, he was a great trainer and trained the great Mercedes and... As I established, you know, myself with John Ma. John was actually apprenticed to Bill, so we got to know Bill really well. And, um, you know, he's just a fabulous horseman. He was good mates with Scobie Breezley and went to, went overseas when Scobie started training to um, basically help Scobie get, get started as a trainer. And uh, Jim Maloney was another great trainer, had Vane, and mm. he had some really good horses. Uh, Affinity won a Caulfield Cup. They won Oakses and Derbies and... Mm. Guys like Andy White were there, had Craftsman. And he was a wait-for-age star, Craftsman. Pat yeah, Highland rode him in most of his wins. 
Pat Highland did, and mm-hmm. uh, he won a couple of Australian Cups, and he won a he won a VRC Derby. Then you had Ray Hutchins, he, he had uh, Gala Supreme, and yeah. George Hanlon was another great trainer. Three Melbourne Cups, and just and a list as long as your arm of of uh, top horses. And I suppose the interesting observation about all of those guys um, was that none of them had a team of more than 25 horses, you know. So mm. they had they had these endless, endless supply of good horses and uh, yet none of them seemed. So I suppose what do you take out of that? I suppose mm. uh, you learn about attention to detail and you watch how these guys, these masters, uh, applied their trade, their one-on-one with the horse down to the beach, you know, how they kept them up year after year, mm. you know. A, a, a horse's career can be over and done with uh, in six months now, and you look at and say it's had a great career. And I suppose credit to Chris Wallow for the job that he's doing with Winks today. He's kept her up, been been able to keep her up year after year now, and um, and that's a great credit to Chris. So um, he's in exalted company. Well, you said Pat that when you first started to muck out boxes at John Mars Place, he thought you'd last a fortnight. Yeah. But you did, in fact, last for 12 years. And during you know, that I period, last, how long? Yeah, More. well, I, I tell you what, John, I still haven't got rid of him. You know, he's, uh, <laughs> he's, uh, we see a lot of John and. Uh, well, you I married suppose, his sister. Well, that's right. I, I was uh, fortunate enough um, to marry Cheryl and uh, we've had a great life together and. Uh, you know, got three kids and a couple of grandkids in the background mm. that are uh, all sort of had, you know, chanced their arm and doing a little bit here and there with the horses. So um, it's been a great, it's been a great life. But you know, in the case of John, um, he's been to Singapore and come back, and mm. he's he's establishing his sons with racing uh, training careers now. He's got Daniel over there in Singapore. He's doing extraordinarily well, and. Uh, Chris Mars down here at Mornington with us, so John John's at our place nearly every day, uh, keeping an eye on both Chris and myself. So hmm. he's, he's still got a pretty good presence with us, Johnny. So yeah, great. So yeah, he's been he's been a master. He's um, he's a when you look back at his career, and when I started with him, he had two horses in a back street in Mentone, and hmm. and you look at the career that he's developed for himself and. More importantly, John, it's not just the horses that he's created; it's it's the people, and it's the people that he's created. He's created this list of people, whether it be jockeys like Brett Preble and Stephen King, and 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 uh, guys like you know Mick Price has been through there, and Glenn Thornton, some great you know Damien Thornton's father. I could just go on. Des O'Keefe was another one who had a close relationship with the stable, mm. and it's just been an en- endless uh, array of people that have benefited from that association, and and uh, I'm lucky to have probably been there from the start, in in, in essence. And uh, you know, out of that, there's been a lot of international contacts made as well. So, you know. Um, even through associations with people like Lloyd Williams and extending out to England like John Ferguson and Henry Plumtree. They were still in England at the time. Mm. So uh, all these people have, have come across um, 
uh, all these people have come across the radar and come in and out of our lives. And the centrepiece has always been John Ma. Yeah, I suppose so. You know, he's always been a... Well, well John's quality, above all else, was he was... He's a fantastic tutor and, and an extremely old-style disciplinarian and, uh, you know, he had... Uh, very strong beliefs in how things should be done and the basics were adhered to religiously. Mm. And, um, you know, it gave everyone a very good base for how they went about their business in racing because essentially it was kept, it was kept pretty simple, but it was done to it, done to the highest level. So, you know, it's, um, it's always, always been there. You took a horse to Brisbane once for John Maher and yeah. uh, little did you realise when you left Victoria that you were walking into one of the most incredible and legendary uh, facets of Australian racing history. But we'll do that in a moment, uh, Pat. We're going to pause for an important break now on the podcast and my special guest is Pat Carey. For over 150 years, Inglis has led the way in the field of thoroughbred auctions. In 2018, Inglis again sold the most dealings at the highest average. Last season, Inglis was number one for Group 1 wins and the only auction house to sell a Group 1 winning two-year-old. They sold four, in fact. I'm proud to align myself with Inglis, number one in its field. Well, Pat, you'd often take horses interstate for John Maher. And on one occasion in 1984, you saddled up a horse called Harbour Gold for a novice handicap at Eagle Farm in Brisbane, little realising that the horse was about to figure in one of Australian racing's, in fact, the most infamous scandal in Australian racing. I think you had a dozen or so horses up there, including Harbour Gold. Yeah, look, it was... um well, it was an amazing time. I mean, I was probably in my young 20s, I suppose, at the time. Uh, John and uh, we had a team of horses. Uh, it was it was pretty early in the days of our relationship, uh, John's relationship with Lloyd Williams, and I think we had maybe a dozen horses in Queensland. It was getting towards the end of the carnival, and, uh, and we were packing up with about a week to go. So we had a horse there called Harbour Gold. We took him to Bundamba. And uh, in those days, I think it was an improvers race, a nine furlong improvers race. And we had a very good Queensland rider, really good quality rider called Les Harris riding, mm. who was um, very well known to Queenslanders. And uh, he was secured for us by Peter Bredow, who's uh, another great racing identity. Uh, Peter's a friend of the stables and uh, gave us a bit of a bit of help securing jockeys and that up there. So Les Harris rides his horse at Bundamba and he belted the tail off him to win this nine furlong um, improvers. And as he came in, Les Harris said, uh, look, Pat, he said, I've, I've cut this horse in half to win today, but he said, I'm pretty sure of one thing. He said, that's not the way to ride him. He said, uh, I think next time we ride this horse, we'll just ride him hands and heels and keep him balanced. So I said, well, we're probably going to give him one more run before the carnival's over. Mm. Anyway, we, we nominated him for a couple of races at Eagle Farm and uh, the, easy, the easy race, which he was 
nominated before he got balloted, so we ran him in the novice and uh, dragged him back to seven furlong. And Les Harris, Les Harris rode the horse, and true to his word, he rode the horse hands and heels and kept him balanced. The horse runs the race of his life and gets beaten ahead mm. by a horse called Fine Cotton. And uh, we now know that following that race, I mean, immediately the horse was in the mountain yard after the race. There was this great uproar. There were people singing out over the fence, ringing, and all types of, uh, you know, scenes going on in the background and was was obviously pretty well known what was going on up there. Most people seemed to know about it except us, but as it turned out, this horse uh, ran the race of his life and nearly beat the uh, the ringing horse anyway, who obviously turned out to be bold personality. A much better performed horse than Fine Cotton, who'd been a picnicker. Yeah, that's right. I mean, obviously that was the sting, wasn't it? You know, drag the horse, get the horse with the worst form and replace it with a... Uh, um, a horse of, of much better ability, not unlike the um, Royal School Regal Vista case, which happened at Castanon back in um, probably the, the late 60s. Mm. Pat, John Maher surprised you one morning when he called you into the office back in Melbourne and told you that he was sending you to England for three months. Now, what brought that on? Yeah, well, look... Um, John had a relationship, uh, Lloyd Williams was our main, main client and, um, you know, he had the lion's share of the horses in the stable and he was very keen for uh, to, to get uh, into the English tried horse market because he had, a, you know, he had a good relationship going with Kerry Packer and John Elliott and they were buying, they wanted to buy, you know, quite a lot of horses out of there to... Um, for this, for the Melbourne Cup, for the Cups, you know, Cup horses. And uh, as it turned out, um, you know, Lloyd was on the, he was on the front foot. He was probably the first one to do it en masse by these horses mm -hmm. that we see is regularly and normal now for most people to buy them. But the problem for John was he had a very young family and uh, he couldn't afford that time away. So I was at a good age where um, I was able to go and uh, I wasn't tied down at that point in my life so I went to um I went to England based myself in Newmarket for about three months and kept contact with John and Lloyd gave me a great opportunity to observe how the English people were training I lived in an old hotel called the Severals Hotel on Newmarket which was overlooking Luca Kamani's yard but it was a good opportunity and we met young bloodstock agents who at the time were in their first year like John Ferguson, Henry Plumtree was still in in uh, Newmarket. So we made these contacts and developed and strengthened the ties and lots of good horses flowed out of that relationship, including uh, Nay Rizzi and, uh, you know, Bocca Tower. And there's quite a lot of horses that came out of that um, exercise. Out of that exercise, yeah. Mm. And they had a, and, and, and also they had a relationship with Paul Moroni, who was Mike Moroni's brother. Yep. And, who I would regard as probably um, probably the best judge of yearlings in in Australasia. He's an amazing judge, Paul Moroni, and mm. he was working in conjunction with these guys at the time. So I spent that time over there and got to observe the English racing and training and 
you know, got to Irish Derby and French Derby and mm. met the old and stayed over there with Billy Pyers, who um, who I think we'd all, for those that are old enough, um, Billy <laughs> Pyers was a, a legendary uh, Australian jockey and uh, and and uh, as for anyone that had known Bill, yeah. He uh, he could always find himself in a bit of hot water or a bit of trouble. <laughs> he certainly could. Yeah. <laughs> what a character. Yeah. If you and met was, Bill Pyers, you'd never forget it. No, nah, look, he was he was very, very funny man, Billy Pyers, and I was lucky mm. to spend a few days with Bill and he showed me around Shantee, but um, he was recognised. He'd won a he'd won a great one of the top races in France and his his um Face was plastered all over the news, and uh, a lady recognised him as having had an accident with him in the street and put him into the coppers. So yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> but he was uh, riding for Nelson Bunker Hunt, who was probably the one of the biggest owners in the world at the time, and uh, they had that great mare Dahlia. Mm. And, um, that was my introduction to French racing was through Bill Pies. Pat, when John Marr switched from Epsom to Flemington, you yeah. decided to stay put and take the plunge, and you set up as a trainer in your own right. Now, you mentioned bloodstock agents a moment ago. There yeah. was an agent called Brian Marshelli who yeah. gave you a big kickstart. Well, I'd done a little bit of work for Brian. Um, Brian Marshelli was, uh, you know, the first my first client as a trainer, and, um, you know, he was probably uh, the linchpin for our business, for my, you know, Cheryl and me put our shingle up and started to train and uh, we ran our business and Brian was an amazing character. He was a, an exporter and an importer of horses and livestock and he was probably one of the great pioneers of Australian export, both him and Frank Ford when, you know, flying cargo horses by plane came in. They used to ship them to Hong Kong and, and Indonesia and all through the Pacific and uh, once once flying became the normal uh, the normal way of, of transporting horses, these guys were on the on the uh, coal face of that and they opened up were, were largely responsible for the opening up of um, horses going to Hong Kong and Jakarta and mm. all them places. He was a great client for us and the first horse I had for him was a horse called King Spirit who uh, gave me my first winner in uh, at Flemington in metropolitan area, and he was uh, he won a listed race down the straight called the Mollison Stakes. And yeah. true true to his uh, business, Brian uh, as a bloodstock agent, he sold him straight to Hong Kong, and he was a really top horse. Patrick Biancone finished up training him, and um, he 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 won a Hong Kong Derby and second in a bowl and Horse of the Year and. Mm. Robert Heffernan, who used to ride him for me, a great jockey, Robert, really um, big help to me as a trainer when I got started. He he, talk, he spoke to Patrick later on, Patrick Biancone, and he said, in his opinion, he said he had win a group one race in Europe without much trouble. So mm. he was a very, very, very good horse. And Brian, Brian uh, had horses with me. Uh, and literally till the day he died, I'd just won a race for him at sale. And I, he suffered a bad fall down the stairs at sale whilst he was coming mm. down the stairs from the owner's presentation, Goodness and uh, unfortunately, and unfortunately passed away. You know, within a day or two later. So mm. uh, his last memories were he had a pocket full of winning tickets and a winner. So mm. 
he was a great man and certainly one that uh, that both myself and Cheryl will uh, always be grateful for. 1997 and the VRC closed the Epsom facility to the great disappointment of many racing people and you and Cheryl were able to lease a 200-acre property called Huntley Lodge uh, from your brother-in-law, John Maher, and from there you produced... Good winners like Vasileos, uh, for instance, Pat, winner of a Ballarat Cup, Thong yeah. Classic, who won a Mooney Valley Cup, uh, Mango yeah. Dakery ran fourth yeah. in an Oaks, not very far from the winner. Yeah, look, that was uh, look, obviously when Epsom closed, it was a disruption to everyone's lives. I mean, everyone who had uh, properties was linked to it, and once your property, uh, once once the facility uh, was removed. Your prop, your your structure and your, your your property had no further use as a racing stable. So mm. it was a kick in the guts to everyone at the time, John. Who uh, some some people really, you know, suffered dearly, like Jim Maloney and that. Who had, you know, there was quite a lot of people that were well, uh, largely affected by that decision. And uh, we initially made a move to Flemington and. Uh, uh, trained at the half mile there, but uh, I didn't. I didn't travel too well to the other side of town, John. Mm. And uh, to be honest, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I didn't get going. I nearly died on the vine at the time. And um, John, John Ma finished up uh, taking up an option to train in Singapore, and uh, his farm at Sunbury, which is called Huntley Lodge, which is uh, um. Beautiful property where Gala Supreme was bred. Actually, he, um, the, the late Frank Curtin, Pat Curtin, had uh, that property. Anyway, um, mm. I finished up leasing it off John, and we had some really good success. Song Classic was a really good horse. Won the Mooney Valley Cup and gave us our first Melbourne Cup runner. Mm. Uh, Vasilas won a Ballarat Cup. We had lots of winners. We basically got cut our team back to about six or seven horses, and you know relied on a little bit of um, pre-training to get going again. David Hall was a was a really, you know, up-and-coming trainer with a big team of horses and David and me were very much similar in uh, age and had a good relationship and we had a lot of horses that um, worked in well together. Well, you've been at Mornington now for 13 or 14 years. You call that property Epsom Lodge uh, with a touch of sentiment for the old place. You're on two and a half acres of land, and it's a great setup. You've got easy access to the beach, Pat. Yeah, I suppose you know what, John. I suppose it's a legacy of having lived at Mordialic, where Epsom was. You know, the Port Phillip Bay is is a most beautiful piece of uh, water, and uh, it's a beautiful, calm, generally calm piece of water, and and it's a sandy bay in most areas. So it's got it's it, Mornington was a natural for us to go down there because it was probably the next uh, most available place that represented Mordialic. And once we'd moved on from Sunbury, we were looking for something that represented Mordialic. And uh, Mornington's a beautiful part of the peninsula and uh, you've got some great facilities, not only in, in, in the training centre there, but I'll get back to that in a minute, but... You know, you've got the Balnaring Beach, which you can work on and uh, wade on, which is in Western Port. And when the wind's blowing the other way, you can go over to Dramana and wade in the beach at Dramana, which is on the, mm. the front side of Port Phillip Bay. So 
it's a good temperate climate. I would say um, it's generally a couple of degrees warmer on the peninsula because you're with, between two bodies of water. You don't get the frosts that you get in other areas. So mm-hmm. it's a it's a nice temperate place to train and and uh, it's just a beautiful part of Australia. Your first Group 1 winner was the famous Victorian Oaks of 2007 with a filly called Arapahoe Miss. Uh, you've got fond memories of her. In fact, you won a race the other day uh, out of town at Geelong, I think it was, during the week with a daughter of Arapahoe Miss, which would have given you a lot of satisfaction. Yeah, look, Arapahoe Miss won the, the Victoria Oaks and she was owned by Clanbrook Syndications, which is Dean Humphreys in his group. Uh, it was my first major win. It was their first major win. Uh, Corey Brown gave it a peach of a ride to win. An unbelievable set of lungs on her. She had an enormous aerobic, had an enormous aerobic capacity. And I genuinely feel that, you know, um, she would have stayed two miles that day if, if she was if she had the opportunity. She was um, just such a natural stayer. And uh, her win was decisive and won easy and, you know, unfortunately for her. She um, came back, ran really well first up in the autumn, took it to Randwick and ran her in the Randwick Guineas, which was a, a new race that they'd just uh, made. And she chipped a bone in her knee. And like a, like a lot of, uh, you know, uh, mares or fillies, they find it incredibly hard to come. Once they've been hurt, mm. um, a lot of them find it very hard to come back from that pain and uh, she never really never really got going again but she's been off to stud and she's been a, a relatively successful broodmare it's an incredibly good family and uh, when the opportunity came in New Zealand uh, Jerry Harvey bought her took her to New Zealand and uh, she'd been mated to all too hard and I bought a, a filly out of Arapahoe Miss Boyle to Arden we've called her the little sister yep named she's got a little uh, half brother called the little engine who's been a very good horse so mm. the mayor's doing a little good job at stud and, and uh, this filly here uh, not not in the same mold as her mother by winning a thousand meter race but no. um, there are other horses in the family that are effective to you know up to a mile and she seems to throw to that side of the family mm. hearts Arthur love was a horse it was a half-sister to a rapper, Miss who ran second in a guinea. So it's a very good female family. A horse called Cedarberg gave you some great thrills and one devastating low. One yeah. of the thrills was the BMW of 2011 with Damien Oliver up. And with that BMW win under your belt, you were very optimistic about a Cups campaign in the spring. But something horrible happened. He was due to race at Mooney Valley. He galloped in the week leading up to that and he pulled up very, very lame. Well, I'll, you know, Cedarberg, uh, I think he was an outstanding horse. He'd, he'd run second in the Mornington Cup, got beaten in a developed print. Uh, anyway, Damien Oliver came up to me. He said, oh, if you're taking that horse to Sydney, Paddy said, I wouldn't mind riding him. And... I think Damien's idea was that we were going to run him in the Sydney Cup, you know, but the the BMW was worth two and 
two and a quarter million at the time. So, mm. um, and it's not even worth that today, I don't think. But um, Trevor Delroy, who owned the horse and bred the horse, uh, was keen to run in the race, and we secured Damien Oliver to ride it. And Damien gave it an unbelievable ride. Got up on the inside of all the horses uh, from about the from about the eight hundred meter mark when everything was wanting to get off the track. It was a one of those days in Sydney where the ground was starting to get tired and no one wanted to be near the fence. And Damien took all the all the shortcuts and got up. And he was a very very good horse and one we never saw the the absolute best off. I'm sure he was heading towards a uh, you know the highest the level as a five-year-old, and uh, he would have made you know super weight for age horse in the autumn in the spring of these next year. But mm. as you alluded to, he, we took him to Mooney Valley and gave him a leisurely six furlong gallop with Reese McLeod on him, and uh, he, we he just unfortunately for him he had a uh, he had a uh, uh, would he have a cardiac basically had a heart attack, you know? Oh, goodness so, me. Yeah, and uh, it was a simple gallop but from a fit horse and, uh, you know, it was it was uh, just really that was the end of it and um, what a great horse he was. Now, one of the great success stories and one of the most rapid risers of a horse in modern history was Ethiopia. He won a maiden at sale in 2012 with Michael Carson in the saddle. Um, no, he didn't win that. He ran third ran, in the yeah, maiden. Yeah, he only won the one race. <laughs> yeah. 20 days later, he ran in a group two, the Autumn Classic, ran third again, Reese McLeod up. Three weeks later, he contested the group two, Alistair Clark, ran second, narrowly beaten. You had just under a month to go to the Australian Derby. We attempted to give him another run. That's a long time, a month. Yeah, well, he was in the Rose Hill Guineas and he was an emergency and he never got a run. So mm. he went he went a month uh, between the Alistair Clark and the Derby without a race. And, you know, oh, to be perfectly honest, I wasn't overly worried by that. It actually suited me. Mm. We, um, you know, the Melbourne Race Club out at Sandown are very good and, you know, regularly open up their course proper for um, trainers to use and we were able to work the horse the reverse way. And we do a lot of um, heart rate monitoring on those horses and he just had such a beautiful big engine. Like mm. He had recovery like I'd never seen on a horse before. He had, a, he had such a, a fantastic engine on him. And so get not, not having... Not being able to have that run in the guineas and miss it wasn't as detrimental to him as what normally you might think. So yes, yeah. I remember, I remember taking him on the Tuesday morning before the Derby. We had him up in Sydney, and I worked him on the Kensington track and galloped him with a horse of Mike Moroni's. And like it was probably I've never seen a horse of ours gallop like it. And mm -hmm. uh, he galloped a solid mile, and he went home five and broke a minute and you know it was something that you don't normally see in track work and when I got to um I remember downloading the information I went over to Kevin Moses who had the e-tracker uh set up on his computer and I said do you mind if I 
and I knew this and I said to Kevin, do you mind if I just download this because I said I don't have the uh, computer with me. Mm. I remember remember leaving the the uh, the workout on Kevin's computer for him. I said, well, I said, you keep that, Kevin. I said, because I said, that's your benchmark, I mm. said, for a horse to win a derby and that was on the Tuesday. Mm. I remember Kev come up to me after race. He said, I had 100 on him, you know, I had 100 on him. <laughs> Good on him. <laughs> On the Saturday, yeah, so uh, yeah, but he, um, you know, he was pretty special. He, he, he was plagued by bad feet. He had um, big flat feet, which has been prob- one of the problems with the Helena stock. Um, he was great. He only had very small books of horses, Helena's, but all of them have got ability, and all of them have um, have had you know similar sorts of issues with their feet, but. Um, yeah, he only had a very uh, brief, you know, career after that. Or well, not brief, I suppose he trained on for a while, but he ran fourth in the Cox Plate behind um, Ocean Park, Piero, and All Too Hard. Um, ran seventh in a Melbourne Cup yeah. after getting knocked down the year Fiorenti won it. He got knocked, the horse, uh, he was minding his own business at the mile and a quarter. He had about three or four horses behind him enjoying the race, and... Unfortunately, the horse in front of him, which was owned by the Aga Khan, broke down and went underneath him and uh, had to dodge it and finished up three wide facing the breeze mm. and half pie took off but managed to run seventh. It was a sensational run and I'm sure it was the run of a horse who, without incident, would have finished somewhere in the money. Adding to the thrill of winning the derby with Ethiopia was the fact that your former apprentice, Reese McLeod, was the jockey. Reese isn't the only successful jockey to serve their time with Pat Carey. You guided the destiny of Sally Wynne, Tommy Campbell, Lucas Dowson. You're uh, victorious Theo Green. <laughs> I, I wouldn't think of – you couldn't mention me in the same um, breath as Theo Green. He was uh, he was something very special. Wasn't he something, mm. something else, Theo Green, the way the people – Ron Quinton and – you know Moses and all. I uh, not Moses, Malcolm Johnson. He had some great apprentices, but it's always been a part of um, our business to have an apprentice. And um, you know, we like to we like to involve them in 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 what we do. They have life. They've become lifelong parts of our family. The kids that have been with us, and um, you know, it's. I think it's uh, they're a valuable asset. I've currently got a young guy called Jack Martin who's doing very well. Who rode the last winner at Mornington at uh, Mooney Valley last week, Mossendale, mm. who's who's a very very competent apprentice and uh, you know probably one of the most experienced ones. He's had a couple of injuries which have held him back, but he's going very well. And I predict a very good finish to his career in the next six to twelve months. So one to watch there. Pat, I had a few other questions prepared for you, but I'm afraid time has beaten us, son, on the podcast. Can I simply say that uh, you've had a love affair with racing from a very early age and there's really no other way to put it. Has there ever been a fleeting moment when you wished you'd chosen another path? No. Um, it's, it's, I've, always, I've, always, I've woken up every day doing something that I want to do um, I really enjoy my life as a trainer. I enjoy the people I work with. I get a, I enjoy the fact that both myself and Cheryl can run a business together that, um, 
you know, is 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 equally as important to both of us with involvement. So I love what I do, John, and uh, you know, the good days, the cold ones, I just they're all part of it. I just love it all for what it is. Yeah. Pat, that's the third rap you've given Cheryl. She's obviously listening. Uh, look, I don't know about that. She's um, she's not she's never far away from me, right? Yeah. But uh, there's no. I always say there's no Pat Carey without any Cheryl Carey. She's always <laughs> there beside me at the races, and uh, whether we're at the sales or at the races, um, and got a good keen eye too. Can pick out a yeah. can pick out a, a nice yearling. So. It's, uh, she's got another string to her bow. Multi-talented. Multi-talented for sure. <laughs> hey, Pat, it's been a delight. As I said earlier, we haven't spoken since Ethiopia won the derby, so it's it's been long overdue and it's been great to catch up. Well, John, it's a privilege to be on your show. Um, I have great respect uh, for the way you're a sensational caller and it's just a great opportunity to catch up with you and uh, can't wait till we get up to Sydney and see you again. Look forward to it, Pat. Thank you very much. Good on you, John. Thanks very much for having me on. For over 150 years, Inglis has led the way in the field of thoroughbred auctions. In 2018, Inglis again sold the most yearlings at the highest average. Last season, Inglis was number one for Group 1 wins and the only auction house to sell a Group 1 winning two-year-old. They sold four, in fact. I'm proud to align myself with Inglis number one in its field. 